All right. So here we are back with our hotcakes. We have well, our hey, first Chris. article. Hey. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? <laughs> how are you guys doing? Long time no see, Chris. It's a lot funnier when he does it to someone else, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on the podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. Indeed, there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know if they were. All right, gentlemen. Well, this is it. Another hotcakes episode. We're back. Wait, wait. Are, this are is we... the intro. Yeah, that's the intro. We're starting. I knew that would throw you off. Yes, it did. Uh, so, hi, Matt. So, uh, hi, hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> how is Paul? The how do you like Northeast? this natural banter? It's, it's. I mean, it's <clears> engaging. <throat> it's enchanting. This should be the entire show. Right. Right. Well, it, but it, you know it's not the entire show tonight, Paul, because this is <laughs> oh. this is hot t- hot cakes, and we're going to be talking about three very interesting articles. Ne- no, four very interesting articles. <laughs> I think five. <laughs> yeah, probably more than that. Yeah, we. I did we some heavy lifting. Uh, but I should also mention that with us is Chris the Chew Man Chew. And so today we're going to be having <laughs> six articles. I forgot Pokemon Go. <laughs> That's right. So today's discussion, we cover a multitude of articles, including um, the f- uh, relationship between physician burnout and the ability to address patients' social determinants of health, as well as a bunch of articles that Stuart brought for iron supplementation and heart failure um, and VTE oh prophylaxis God. using aspirin. We might have some honorable mentions, including Pokemon Go at the end. So take a listen. Well, seven, including the New England Journal article that I mentioned. So seven. Yes, seven. I'm sure the audience is just really going to be be sticklers about if we got the number of articles wrong. Sure, it's gripping. So well, they've not skipped past this at this point. I don't. I don't even know what to tell them. <laughs> yeah, Paul, uh, why don't you tell them? Uh, actually, I guess this is we don't do that on this episode, do we? No, no maybe we should just go to the show. That sounds so good. Yeah. All right. So I think our first our first article this uh, month or quarter or however often we're going to do this now is going to be from Paul. And he's got actually a really interesting article. Do you want to take it away, Paul? I, I've got, yeah, I do. Thanks, Chris. Um, so happy to be with you guys again. Did I say that already? Is this the time where I say that? It doesn't matter. It's true regardless. Is this um, one about vaping or marijuana? You know, I was going to say, I, I'm breaking tradition in one way and that this is in no way about marijuana, except maybe obliquely, if that's a means for dealing with burnout. But in other ways, I'm maintaining tradition by picking articles where I don't understand the statistical analyses at all. So I think in... And some total, it's 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 my usual effort. Um, but the article I picked is by Oleiwola et al. Uh, and this is from the Journal of Healthcare for the Poor and Underserved. And the title is Higher Perceived Clinic Capacity to Address Patients' Social Needs Associated with Lower Burnout and Primary Care Providers. And if you read the title, um, basically you get a sense of the article. And so it's it's an interesting study, a survey-based study, where basically they... <laughs> at first, I was a little bit cynical. So I, I, I read the title, and it seemed like... We just took two popular phrases that are banded about on Med Twitter a lot and then threw them into a generator and spit out a research article. <laughs> but it, I, I think it actually it addresses a really interesting question. So they, they make the background points that, of course, we know burnout is an epidemic among uh, primary care providers and then even more so among that field and sort of among specialists necessarily. Um, and then also, uh, particularly in safety net clinics, underserved clinics, there are certainly higher pressures that may make burnout worse. And so they actually wanted to evaluate if 
your perception of the capacity of the clinic in which you work to take care of the patient population impacts your degree of burnout. Um, so that's the background for it. It's actually, they sent out surveys to a bunch of sites. They sent it out to 19 clinics in San Francisco um, in three different health systems. So the health systems include the San Francisco Health Network, um, some of UCSF, UCSF's health systems, and then three VA clinics as well. So they actually got a fairly good sampling, and they sent it out to all levels of trainees. So it was also, it was resident physicians, which I was impressed with, as well as non-resident physicians, and then advanced practice practitioners as well. So they got a good cross-section of people who do uh, primary care. And they sent out surveys looking at components of burnout. So the the classic Maslach, and if you um, look at any research like this, anytime someone says Maslach, you should take a shot and then you'll die. Um, <laughs> that looked at the three elements of burnout. Thanks for laughing, Watto. So things like um, professional <laughs> efficacy, feelings like cynicism, uh, and then feelings of uh, exhaustion are the three main domains that they looked at. And then they also um, invented their own... Uh, metric to actually measure your perceived satisfaction with your ability to take care of a social determinants of health. So they actually came up with four questions that they asked. So those questions included, I'm comfortable asking about patient social needs as part of their primary care. It is important to address patient social needs as is to address their medical needs in primary care. I have the skills to address the social needs of patients. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, as we'll find, my clinic has the resources such as dedicated staff, community programs, resources, or tools to address patient social needs. And they sent these surveys out electronically into the wind um, and then just waited for the results to pour back in. And they actually had a pretty good response rate. It was like a 71% response rate, which in this kind of thing is, is pretty good and certainly better than I've ever done. So as a reminder, the Maslach Burnout Inventory um, has a six-item subscale on professional efficacy, uh, a five-item subscale on emotional exhaustion, a five-item subscale on cynicism. Um, for the efficacy, the score ranges from 0 to 36, where 36 is the highest level of efficacy, and a score of 23 or lower is classified as low professional efficacy. The exhaustion subscale, a total score between 0 and 30, where 30 is as exhausted as you get, and 0 is your bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, like our uh, Stuart Ken Brigham. Um, <laughs> and then their cynicism scale is a score between 0 and 30, where 30 is the highest level of cynicism, and we will name no names, and a score of 11 or higher is classified as high cynicism. We should all take those surveys and see what our scores are. I've already done it. I don't want to disclose. We, 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 should, we should do it and like uh, tell the aggregate numbers for our entire team and our response rate of like 15%. <laughs> it's just you. You know, like, response. <laughs> that would make for a really, really funny research paper. Yeah. So, Paul, what were, what were the results for this? Great question. Thanks so much for asking. Um, You're so welcome. They, they did this. So the, here's where I get into the cystical massage, which, of course, is my Achilles heel. And sort of looking mm -hmm. at the numbers, I couldn't quite make sense of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell you, looking at the, the four social needs simultaneously and the multivariate analysis, and this is the main takeaway point that I wanted to emphasize, the thing that was consistently associated with burnout is – actually, I should probably phrase this the other way around. The thing that seems most protective against burnout is the perception that your clinic is capable of taking care of the social determinants of health needs. And so if you look at all factors kind of all at the same time – um, the thing that sort of is most consistent throughout is the fact that if you perceive that your clinic is able to take care of patients, you're less likely to be burnt out than if you feel like your clinic is not able to take care of patients that have high social needs. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. How much clinic did these people see? Did these physicians and providers see? That's an outstanding question. And actually, it's, it's interesting. There was some correlation between how many clinics you had and at least how exhausted that you got. So um, it was about at least half of them had three or more clinic sessions um, per week. And I think... Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so 
a fair amount. There, there was a, a segment, but a, a chunk that had maybe uh, one half set, a session being a half day session a week. But there, there were a good amount that actually had at least three sessions and usually more. Yeah, so that that was about forty five percent had three or more. Fifty five point five percent had one to two half days. I, I wonder. I don't know. I have to go back and, and actually see if there's a. Did they? It did looks they like they use that? the people with the one to two half days as the reference range. As sort of the reference range. Ah, uh, yeah. okay, got it, got it. That makes a little more sense. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, we this is way back when we did an episode on burnout, and we we talked to this uh, Phil Croth from University of New Mexico, and like one of the main points that I remember, he was saying that in the the research they had done on burnout. They found that when physicians had like a sense of control over the system they were working in or felt like they could make changes to it, that they that was like one of the best things that could be done for burnout. And uh, this kind of seems that way. It's like if you're in a system that's working where you feel like you have the ability and the capacity to take care of your patients, not just yourself, but also like the people around you, then, of course, it's going to be an easier, like more probably fulfilling environment to work in. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And it, I mean, obviously, if you know me, you know, I, I chose this article just so I could editorialize, um, obviously not for yeah. my love of statistical analysis. But, you know, I was, I was just because, you know, I think we're all involved in residency training. I, I do think primary care, it, it's hard for a lot of reasons, but I don't think the actual medicine part is the hardest part. I think especially as a trainee, the mm-hmm. most frustrating part is trying to figure out how do I order DME and where do I send patients for psychiatric care and how do I get this person food when they don't have any? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's marshalling your resources and kind of finding out how to work those aspects of the system. They're the most frustrating things to residents. You know, blood pressure targets, pretty easy to talk about. How do I feed this patient? I think is a much trickier concern and a much more frustrating concern. And if you can't address that, you can't do the medicine that is intellectually rewarding. So for me, this this is confirmation bias. I picked an article that sort of confirmed what I already suspected, that it, if you can't address sort of the fundamental needs of patients, then you can't feel satisfied taking care of, of any aspect of their medical care. Now, I, I do want to make one little distinction, though, because in the, in the study, they looked at perception of ability to assess. Right. They actually That's might have those resources. So especially with our trainees who, like you said, have difficulties and are just right. learning systems issues, like our interns may not know like the bevy of the social workers and case managers right. that, and utilize them well. Versus maybe the attendings may, you know, so that's, that would be, a, I, I would say a difference. I was going to say what drives perception is always going to be the environment of care that you're working in. Uh, it's going to be leadership driven, uh, staff, a physician dependent, whoever you're working with, it, it, it kind of rolls downhill. So I think a lot of that perception is, you know, that's something that we could correct even without changing the actual uh, mechanisms by which we provide those services. I, I, Stuart, I've got every so often when I agree with you, I get a little bit nervous about myself, but I 100% agree. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it's messaging, a lot of it's just sort of advertising what we already have in existence. I think at a lot of places, you know, it, probably there's a lot of people working on things like this and they're just not known or they're not working together. Right. And if you can just get your messaging out there and coordinate things and then advertise appropriately, you could address those needs probably a little bit more and better for patients and better for learners. There was, uh, when I was in residency, uh, it was a much, much busier platform than we currently have down where I'm current, where I'm, than we have where I'm currently working. The biggest difference in the place where I, where I trained versus where I presently work is the absence of case managers where I presently work. Those case managers were just instrumental in providing the services for patients that otherwise I have to do on my own. And, you know, those, those resources are there, but they're not as readily available. If we had the case managers that were readily available, 
to provide those services, you know, that, that would in and of itself would, would reduce the burnout. Um, and that just kind of goes to, to show that the multidisciplinary um, and system-based uh, approach to providing healthcare can help to address some of these disparities. Stuart, I wanted to ask you about this. The because you're you're in hospital leadership now. Yeah. What do you think about <laughs> they 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 always they always quote this these like really high numbers. So this article mm. cites a couple articles that the cost of turnover to replace a primary care uh, or family physician is two hundred thirty six thousand to two hundred sixty four thousand dollars, and that mm. was from a study. One of those studies they quoted was from nineteen ninety nine. I imagine in today, you know, today it might be, the cost might be more. And I imagine to get some of these support services, you know, if you're, if you're talking about losing your workforce, it's probably, it's probably worth the money. So, I mean, yes. Uh, When we look, I mean, that's probably the easiest way to answer that question. Yes, it is worth the money, especially when you look at the, dare I say, the cheapest components of the healthcare system are generally those that are lacking the most. And so when you don't have enough uh, nurses, enough LVNs, enough uh, medical assistants, enough case managers, it doesn't matter how many physicians that you have. But even when you replace a physician with, with a, a well-trained physician, it can take anywhere from three to six months to get them working up to speed. And during that time, you lose appointment availability. And so um, looking at just appointment availability, you, you can easily lose $100,000 to $150,000 in lost revenue in just getting them up to speed. And that, that has nothing, that, that doesn't even t- take into consideration the amount that it takes to train a physician. So I, I, I just did a, a hand jam real quick to see how much you'd lose by ramping up a physician by lost productivity. It's anywhere from hundred dollars to $150,000. Okay. So yeah. It, I'm sorry, a ham jam? <laughs> on, on a, on, on I was going to let it here. slide, Paul, but I guess we got to dig into this. <laughs> Yeah, of course that 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 determines like like subcapitation versus fee for service model. So on a fee for service model, you lose that much, but not not on a subcapitation model. I see. And I guess uh, my follow up question is, why is my nose bleeding now? <laughs> because I capitated it. Because <laughs> you blew my mind. All right, Paul, how many hotcakes are you going to give this? I I don't care. What's what's our scoring <laughs> system again? Talk. So uh, so I would say zero to six. A full stack is six hotcakes. So that makes half a stack three hotcakes. Can you do the Mickey Mouse hotcakes? Wait, we can't say Mickey. You Mouse. have to give a full cake, Paul. There's no partial hotcakes. There's no partial hotcakes. I'm I'm gonna go, which I think I've never given anything other than four hotcakes. So I'm I'm just gonna stay consistent, or I think I refuse to score. This might be a first hotcake score. You could do a heart shaped hotcake. <laughs> this, this does is that mine. count for more? Six heart shaped hotcakes, Stuart? Are you are you saying that counts? I didn't say six. I said one. That's like that's like a royal flush versus a straight flush. Like <laughs> the hotcakes are a heart shape. I am smelling burnt toast now. Just to, as an update, I'll keep you guys posted. <laughs> Is that temporal lobe? <laughs> All right. I think we should move on. All right. So I think Stuart has a sort of a, a bevy of papers, all very similarly um, themed. I know you you yeah. sort of put this out on Twitter a couple, was it like a week or so ago? And actually you got quite a bit of... Uh, oh, man. It's, yeah. it's It's been a while. Yeah. I predict more notes for Paul after I was very confused. Probably. And then we can give him some ferret carboxymaltose. Just the figures yeah. alone. <laughs> yeah. So so my my slew of articles is uh, in relation to a manuscript that I'm currently writing on non-anemic iron deficiency, specifically looking at one of the enzymatic activities uh, that are influenced by by iron. And that's the, I have to say this right, the L-arginine beta hydroxylase activity. I, I actually, I, I didn't know this, 
that uh, arginine is hydroxylated to citrulline and the byproduct is nitric oxide. I did some research on nitric oxide synthase back in uh, undergrad and, and uh, medical school. Um, and this just came completely bypassed me. And I realized that I may have missed one of the reagents when I did the did the reaction. That may have been why I failed. I didn't never added any kind of iron substrate. Anyhow, so knowing that one of the bob, uh, byproducts is nitric oxide and it requires I, uh, iron, I started doing a lit search. Um, and of course, there's a recent article that came out in March of 2019 by Zhao et al. Uh, iron supplementation improves cardiovascular outcomes in patients with heart failure. This was actually a meta-analysis that was published in the American Journal of Medicine. Yeah, American Journal of Medicine. The Green yeah. Journal. Yeah, the Green Journal, the American Journal of Medicine. Um, Wado knows what I think about meta-analyses. So they can point towards a trend in healthcare, but not necessarily, they should not be used to determine what you're actually going to do to your own practice. Um, now, this article is very interesting. Of course, there's some heterogeneity in the way that the iron is administered. Um, they look at 1,404 heart failure patients in a total of 10 randomized controlled trials and showed that when compared to placebo, uh, that the, the the iron improved the six-minute walk test, uh, had a trend towards incre- uh, improved or reduced hospitalization for heart failure, uh, improved quality of life, left, left ejection fraction, et cetera, et cetera. So I pulled out one of the articles from there by um, Ponikowski et al., uh, the title of which is Beneficial Effects of Long-Term Intravenous uh, Iron Therapy with Ferric Carboxymaltose, or FCM, in patients with symptomatic heart failure and iron deficiency, published in the European Journal European Heart Journal, 2015. So this one is more what I was looking for. So this is long-term impact of IV iron for patients that have stable New York Heart Association class two or three heart failure. Uh, Iron deficiency in heart failure is defined by ferritin less than 100, or if the transferrin saturation is less than 20%, um, the ferritin would be less than three. So if ferritin is less than 300 if the transferrin saturation is less than 20%. So these patients were randomized, a total of 301 patients were randomized to either receiving FCM or uh, normal saline that was dosed based on weight and hemoglobin. Make a long story short, the uh, average dose, dosage was 1,500 milligrams of FCM, kind of what we see in clinical practice. Um, now, this, this did show an improvement in six-minute walk test and fatigue, but what's most interesting for what I'm interested in as a hospital and clinic leader is looking at the hospitalization risk. So the overall incidence reduced from 19.4% to 7.6%. That is just bonkers with a number needed treat of 8.5. So I went forward and did a what I typically do, a cost-benefit analysis so it would cost $10,000 to prevent one hospitalization for heart failure when a heart failure hospitalization costs an average of about $9,000. When you look at the other uh, impacts of giving the ferric carboxymaltose, I mean, this to me is, is a no-brainer. It, at least from a cost-benefit analysis, is, an, is offset. But when you look at the functional assessments and improvements, that to me says we should be doing this. Uh, and then the last follow-up study I have is just a single-dose uh, IV iron uh, in Southeast Asia, heart failure patients, uh, pilot study, randomized control, randomized placebo-controlled trial, the Practice Asia AF uh, trial um, by uh, Yao et al. It was published in the European Society for Cardiology Heart Failure in 2018. And specifically, I pulled this one out because it looks at patients that were admitted for decompensated heart failure because the concern has been if we administer IV iron during a hospitalization, would it increase their risk for their short-term risk for rehospitalization? At least within a 12-week period, there was no increased risk um, and otherwise is considered safe. So 
overall, the bottom line for all this says to me that we need to be looking at iron deficiency and heart failure. We need to be treating it. And it's safe to treat during an acute hospitalization for heart failure, as long as they don't have an infection, obviously, and other things would otherwise exclude them from receiving IV, IV iron. And on a side note, the initial uh, patient population that was screened on um, the last trial that I talked about, over 50% had iron deficiency, and they were non-anemic with an, with an average hemoglobin between 12.3 and 12.5. So these are non-anemic, iron-deficient heart failure patients that otherwise would that, go untreated. That last study was the the functional outcomes weren't that impressive though. Like it was, it was it no, was they more weren't. like a, they weren't. But it was at twelve twelve minutes. weeks. I'm sorry, it right. was at twelve weeks. And they right right. And if you look at the prior study, the fifty two week that that shows that at twelve weeks there was no difference in in the six minute walk test, but that the six minute walk test um, had a statistically significant difference starting at about 24 weeks and con- continued yeah. up until 52 and, weeks. And they said probably because the first 12 weeks, they're just better because right. you treated their heart failure. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, now, the first improvements that they see in, uh, so this is going back to the um, the Ponikowski et al. trial. The first thing that looks to be statistically uh, and, and clinically improved is actually the fatigue assessment. So this was on a based on an analog 0 through 10 scale. Um, starting off with 5.5 for the fer- the FCM and 5.3 for the placebo group, there was a difference of 0.7 at 52 weeks between the two groups. Um, suggestive, uh, and I, I don't know if that would be clinically significant because this is just a straight up uh, analog zero through ten scale. Right. But but you you can assume, I suppose, I would I would throw my own assumptions in here that a 0.7 difference when you're starting out around 5 to 5.5 is pretty significant. So the, I, I just wanted to point out the meta-analysis that the, the 2019 meta-analysis from the Green Journal was looking at heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Right. And that did show decreased hospitalizations. I, right. I don't know that it's as well studied in HEF-PEF yet. No, it is not. So, and I think that might be part of why that last study, the 2018 ESC heart failure article you presented, that was, that had both HEF-PEF and HEF-REF in it. And I think maybe, maybe that was part of the reason. Also, like you said, they didn't look out far enough. I'd I'd have to dig into that deeper. Yeah. Uh, I pulled it out mostly for the safety analysis for acute decompensated heart failure. One of the funny, oh, oh, go go ahead. I I was going to say one of the funny things about this, when I looked, I was looking up like, they the ferritin cutoffs are pretty high, and I was wondering right. why. But they they're uh, buried in one of those. Higher. Yeah, I'm sorry. The B- baseline ferritin is higher in CHF. It, it's a it's a chronic infl- inflammatory condition, so hepcidin yeah. levels are also higher, so they don't absorb oral iron very well. It's the yeah. same thing as like CKD. Yeah, I just didn't. I never really thought of like heart failure as a chronic inflammatory condition right. until very recently. So that's right. That, it, that's that actually one of the. I wanted that's to point actually out. one of the the inclusion criteria for IV iron is heart failure or CKD because of the chronic inflammatory state. Um, and one of the ways that this is this is changing over time, aside from just looking at ferritin goals, as the ubiquitous uh, nature of the soluble transferrin receptor lab is permeating more into the, the medical establishment, uh, right now it costs about $50 to get that test versus $25 for a ferritin test. But once that the prices go down, you'll probably uh, start to see more soluble transferrin receptor activity level because there's more correlation with actual true iron stores when compared to ferritin levels. Right, right. It's not affected by inflammation. Right. And I, I've, I've started doing that myself in my own clinical practice. 
So like in, in a practical standpoint, not, what, what are you doing when you're emitting your CHFers? Are you getting a soluble transfer in plus yeah. a ferritin and then working from there? And if they're iron deficient, then you, you're so, giving them so, what type of iron you're giving? And So so at the present time, what we're doing is, uh, and we, we haven't really set up a, a protocol for this, but prior to discharge, I'm asking for ferritin and transferrin um, uh, and, and uh um, TIBC. I, I want to know what if the TSAT's less than twenty percent, uh, ferritin less than three hundred, or ferritin less than one hundred, without with disregard to the, the TSAT. Um, if they meet the, the inclusion for that group, then there's no further testing that's needed. If they don't meet the inclusion for that group, then I'm asking for a soluble transfer and receptor activity. That's a send out lab. Takes about four days for that to come back. When that comes back, we calculate the ferritin index, uh, which is the uh, soluble transfer receptor activity divided by the logarithm of the ferritin. So it, it, there's some there's some math the lab, that has to go into there. Yeah, the lab at Cashlack reports that out to me if I order a soluble transferrin. It, it kind of reports yeah. it out and it, it tells me how to interpret it as well. So, so so unfortunately, my lab reports the soluble transferrin receptor activity level in nanomoles per liter. So I have to do stoichiometry and then do the calculation myself. <laughs> I have I have an Excel document that does that for me. It's just annoying. That just seems so like. Why? It just I don't know. Seems it's the one reason I learned not surprising is what that seems. <laughs> I guess that's why this. You're at the cash like regional ambulatory practice. That's right. That's right. So it, may, it does make sense. With 650 beds, yes, <laughs> definitely ambulatory. So Stuart, how many hot kicks are you giving this? I'm giving this one six, honestly, because this this has changed the way that I approach heart failure and could substantially improve. Uh, heart failure morbidity by reducing hospitalizations. All right. So, all right. So six out of four? No, six out of six. six. It's a full stack. I don't even even know. Come on. This is is the hotcake scale. We should know this by now. It's been a while, guys, okay? I'm so insulted, Chris. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Matt, you have our last uh, article of the night, and um, it's sort of um, an interesting one that's sort of come up a couple times for me, at least in the last couple of years. about aspirin and uh, VTE prophylaxis, you want to talk about it? Yeah, and if you're if you if you do any consult medicine from time to time, or if, if hmm, when when I, I was working when I was working primary care, I'd be like getting these patients coming back from orthopedic surgery on like 81 milligrams aspirin twice a day for 35 days, whatever it was, and I was just like, where does this come from? <laughs> and you know, I I see it done all the time, and so I just wanted to look into it a little bit more, and apparently. Uh, just to give a little background, the reason they like, well, the reason they like to do it is the first thing I'll tell you, which is basically it's easier than having someone have to inject themselves with like a low molecular weight heparin and it's cheaper. It's it's pretty easy to get your hands on aspirin and patients are just more familiar with it. So it's c- kind of the convenience factor. And then there's some suggestion from like registry data and some of the orthopedic literature that maybe there's less post-op hematoma with iron or with iron. Stuart, you got me iron on the brain now. <laughs> I know. With, uh, with aspirin, You're maybe welcome. there's less post-op hematoma with aspirin. Maybe there's less post-op joint infections and less wound drainage than you than you might see with some of the DOACs or some of the low molecular weight heparins. So that's sort of why people are so interested in it. That's probably why the surgeons like it so much because of those, you know, they want to take care of their, of their surgical site. But What I'm most interested in is, are we going to prevent PE, DVT? Are we going to, you know, help patients live longer? 
So one of the one of the first studies that came out on this was the PEP trial back in 2000 was one of the first trials that actually like formally looked at this because like I said, in the 80s and 90s, they were giving people like these insane doses of aspirin post-op, like three or four grams of, of aspirin. And the PEP trial just looked at 160 milligrams of aspirin or placebo, and the patients could also get whatever other prophylaxis that the surgeons wanted to give them. And th- the bottom line of that is that it maybe they prevented about seven fewer uh, symptomatic venous thromboembolisms per thousand patients at the expense of three bleeds and two non-fatal MIs. Interesting that adding aspirin caused like increased risk for non-fatal MI. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, the bleeding, not surprising. So then, but more recently, uh, so the CHESS guidelines from 2012, and I thought this was hilarious, say that aspirin is an option for post-op prophylaxis after orthopedic surgery, like total joint arthroplasty, but uh, they do have a footnote in there that says one reviewer refused to sign off on that and wanted a footnote saying that he wouldn't sign off on it. That reviewer is my hero. (laughs) That is spectacular. (laughs) And uh, and and then you can kind of look at the 2012 chess guidelines. They they do say aspirin's in there, but they kind of talk about some of the limitations. More recently, more modern trials. There's this this uh, researcher Anderson from Canada did the EPCAT one trial and EPCAT two, and the gist of those trials, one had a lead in with low molecular weight heparin, and then the patients were discharged on aspirin after about 10 days, and the other one had a lead-in with rivaroxaban, 10 milligrams, like the low-dose rivaroxaban, and then the patients were discharged on aspirin, and uh, they they showed no difference in bleeding, no no difference in, in like, venous thromboembolism. So those trials kind of told us that it, it does seem safe to use aspirin as part of a hybrid approach, but I'm still curious, like, why... Why am I seeing, I'm seeing patients get switched right to aspirin without any lead in from anything else, like no hybrid approach. And that's what I've always been a little skeptical of. So it turns out there is a now a pepper trial that's ongoing that'll come out in 2021 with like 25,000 patients and it's aspirin, 81 milligrams twice a day. And they're going to start that like right away at the time of the operation versus warfarin versus rivaroxaban, 10 milligrams. So I think we'll finally have like a good answer to this for total joint arthroplasty. Um, but my main article was just a meta-analysis from uh, our, mm. my hometown of Philadelphia, not a meta-analysis, a retrospective study from my hometown of Philadelphia, one of the institutions here, Thomas Jefferson. They looked back at like 31,000 orthopedic surgery patients, uh, and they basically grouped them non-aspirin versus aspirin, and uh, they kind of looked out to see uh, what were the outcomes, and they actually found that at a year, it looked like aspirin had uh, improved mortality when the patients, the patients basically post-op when they left the hospital, they either got four to six weeks of a non-aspirin therapy, which could have been like low molecular weight heparin or different other antiplatelet agents other than aspirin, or they were on aspirin. And uh, when they left the hospital, they, they continued those for four weeks and they looked at mortality at a year and they saw a mortality benefit with aspirin. So the answer is we, we maybe... <laughs> May, yeah so well, the answer is maybe the, the limitation of that is they said that like more modern in the more modern times when surgical techniques and outcomes were improving that more patients just the institution naturally was using more aspirin so they thought maybe that has some bias in the data kind of making aspirin look more favorable for mortality but they they did notice there was lower cardiovascular um, deaths in the aspirin group 
So I, malignancy, like the results are wild. Like it's bear attacks, lightning strikes. It's like if you took an aspirin, you're just <laughs> like it. I just I'm having a hard time. So I'm having I, a hard time. I think the point, you know, I think the point of this, what this retrospective study looks at, I think it just adds to the fact that probably aspirin is safe. If you know, if you send patients out for it for four weeks, they're probably no less likely to be dead at a year than they would have been without it. Um, I still think this other pepper trial that I alluded to is probably going to give us a better answer. So, you know, but if your primary care patient comes to you after they've just been in the hospital and they're on aspirin, 81 milligrams daily, you can probably feel safe continuing it. And they're probably not going to be at like greater risk for PE or, or death, which is good. Yeah. There's a, (laughs) there's a, there's a trial that I present as one of the evidence-based medicine, uh, curriculum uh, modules at our hospital. And it's from the New England Journal of Medicine for 2010. That's the Pixaban versus Noxaparin for thromboprophylaxis after hip replacement. Okay. And and this one to me, uh, when I look at the data, um, it, it is highly suggestive that not only is a Pixaban likely superior to Noxaparin, but it's something that we should be looking at for post-op uh, DVD prophylaxis. Now, when you look at your aspirin trial, it includes data back 2000. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in the non-aspirin group that I yeah. don't know how to interpret that. Yeah. And so when I look at this trial, I just kind of say, that's, that's neat, that's interesting, but it's not necessarily something that I would use to change my clinical practice, knowing that an RCT that compares anoxaparin versus uh, a Pixaban shows actual superiority. So I don't know. And I guess, and this may be a dumb question, so cut this out if I sound even more like a moron than usual, but just sort of this binary aspirin, no aspirin, how did they determine that the patient was discharged on aspirin with the intent of using that as prophylaxis alone? You, do you understand what because I'm asking? Because it was like the 81 milligrams uh, twice a day. So it um, actually, did okay. they, no, you know what? They didn't specify... They, no, they didn't specify the do- It was very, he- like, there was a lot of heterogeneity because they didn't really specify. It was just if aspirin was discharged. But they looked right. at who was on aspirin pre-op and post-op. They did track that. So they knew. Did so, they like, track why they were on it? Like, what, are, what if they're discharged on aspirin because of coronary artery disease? And maybe that's why they had a decreased risk of... of that's a good question. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. That's, no, that's they didn't, my question. Yeah, exactly. They didn't really, you know, they, they didn't go through 31,000 charts to, like, figure out, like, why that aspirin was chosen over the other agent. And I think the, the, the point is that they... Oh, here it is. In, from the, oh, sorry. From the editorial, so, Paul. 8,000 received 81 milligrams and 5,500 received 325. Okay. No significant difference in mortality at 30 days uh, and one year between either groups. Yeah. And, and the majority of patients in the non-aspirin group were on warfarin. And then, like, in more modern mm-hmm. times, you know, I'm sure it was skewing more, probably more towards, like, the, the DOAX. Like uh, DOAX, yeah. Right. Yeah, Stuart, it's interesting. I, I don't see, I haven't seen any patients uh, on a Pixaban. I'm sure it's, like, a local culture thing. And it, it I've seen well, some I've, of the... Well, I've, I've hit resistance with that with our, uh, with, with our surgeons as well, because they say, well, what if they require re, uh, some kind of operative intervention? I'm like, well, you just yeah. gave them aspirin, which... Seven days. <laughs> <laughs> which irreversibly... Yeah, it impacts platelet functions. Right. So, which one's worse? Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. They have they have this data from their registries where they think there's less post-op hematoma, less wound drainage, um, less right. joint infections with aspirin. So that's why. And, and that's specifically what really... this RCT from 2010 was trying to answer about yeah. Apixaban mm-hmm. when they look at uh, reoperative risk. So the the reoperative risk on uh, on Apixaban was 
I, I again, we, we we weren't looking at this specifically. Yeah. Um, well, so ble- bleeding at surgical site. Uh, let's see events. Uh, well, Chris can cut this. Yeah, nope. I'm I'm looking at audio knee, gold. Art, yeah, right. Um, I think we're getting I think we're getting a little he, too deep. He, into the hemarthrosis anyway. requiring reopera- reoperation or reintervention was one patient. Yeah, in both this groups. This is the one trial. I mean, like they have like huge registries. There's and been stuff no like. RCT that follows up on this oh, with the donuts. I do. Yeah. For okay. post-op. So I want to bring bring back to what okay. I always do is like in terms of like practical like practical significance. Like I think when I see this happen in, in the outpatient setting and I see a patient follow up, I do see that you know there's a difference in terms of price. Like aspirin is really cheap versus someone who wants yes, to do is. a DOAC who may not be able to pay for a DOAC as an outpatient to finish off their their course of prophylaxis or. Um, Right, or even right, right. those who don't want to inject themselves with Lovenox. So, I mean, it can be pretty expensive and they're all yeah. complications. So I can see where there's also a lure for aspirin for, from like the patient standpoint as well. Yeah. yeah. And the, the hybrid strategy seems to be, uh, the hybrid strategy seems to be safe and effective. So I, I'm comfortable with that. It's just, I and I, but to be honest, when I'm doing consult medicine, like I can recommend it, but the surgeons seem to just be putting pe- patients right on aspirin. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, I don't. I can't say for sure from the data so, so far. I don't think we can say that that's as good as doing a hybrid approach. Right. right. So, so to answer your question, uh, Chris, I actually did a cost benefit analysis on a Pixaban that showed that the number of hospitalizations that it reduced for DVT PE treatment actually offset the cost. Okay. So, so I mean, I I can give you that data. So I will give this article uh, four hotcakes. <laughs> I'll I'll, t- I'll take the Paul Paul Williams method. I'll give four hotcakes. Sorry, Thomas Jefferson, but I'll, I'll make them heart shaped. So it's kind of, oh. you know, that's like a four plus, I guess. But I do uh, I do I do really like uh, talking about this aspirin, DVT prophylaxis, all this yeah. all this anticoagulation stuff. It seems like there's a lot of room to argue in this field. That's, that, I feel like it's like right in your talking. wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> In, any any heme topic is uh, gets me talking. I should have been a hematologist. Yes. All right, Chris, do we have any hot takes or honorable mentions that you wanted to 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 talk about before we get going? Okay, for I'm just going to bring here? up um, the one that Hannah R. Abrams, our 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 great uh, Twitter uh, master, she she did pop one up on our um, on our Slack channel that she wanted us to mention this Pokemon Go study. Talk. <laughs> so is this Japanese? It was a That's Japanese a thing study still? that showed that um, these ad- young adults who played Pokemon Go um, it uh, apparently significantly relieved their psychological distress. And so apparently there's a new uh, Harry Potter version of this Pokemon Go game coming out. So she was really excited and wanted us to talk about it. There are other books. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. His Dark Materials is pretty good. God. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm that, so sorry. That's pretty much it. I thought that was a good honorable mention, um, a quick one. Okay. And Chris, I, I think we need to start doing these more on the regular again so we can, uh, we can you know, this is this is very painful for me to go through all these articles and uh, I feel like a moron, but I think it's ultimately good for, f- I think it's ultimately good. So uh, thank you for forcing us to and do so this. We, we sort of discussed a little earlier um, off offline, but if there are any statisticians who are listening to our podcast and are interested in helping us out understand <laughs> our statistics, go ahead and shoot me a DM on Twitter or send us an email, and uh, we might consider start opening up applications for a curbsider statistician. So, um. 
This is assuming they've not thrown the listening device out the <laughs> yeah. window and then you know, tore Chris, their clothes in despair. I think there's got to, I think, yeah, I think there's got to be some bar for this. But I would say, you know, maybe send, maybe send Chris like a paragraph or two on why you would be awesome uh, as our statistician on the show. Yeah, I think that would be. Yeah, just, that would just be DM good. me on Twitter. Uh, we'll get my, my email and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll see what we get. I look forward to seeing uh, the results. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Yummy? Every so often I think about my life and the series of decisions I've made to get me to this specific point, and I, I think, here I sit, I'm a grown man, I'm a grown man, I have a job, I have responsibilities, and I'm just waiting for another grown man with a job with children, a grown man with children, to say the word yummy so I can get on with my life, and this is, this is where my life has led me to. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And to springboard off of what Paul said, we are committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Uh, special thanks to our other Curbsider team members, including Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter. Uh, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram and uh, thanks to myself who's on Facebook. And to the wonderful Sarah Phoebe Roberts who put together this episode and the show notes and uh, made us nice summaries of the articles for us so that uh, we knew what was going on. Uh, she does wonderful work on this show. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent. Break up. <laughs> I'm Chris the Chew Manchu. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. Good night, Paul. Good night. Let's yeah. I was going to say something about excrement. Let's <laughs> save that for the the outtakes at the end. Oh no. Okay. I'm going to stop recording now. Yeah, me too.